Okay, the former uh, manager of Manchester United, okay, a man called Sir Alex Ferguson, um, he was famous for the attitude that he was able to foster from amongst his players. So every year it seemed to happen, every year uh, the football season would get to its peak and Sir Alex was able to convince his players that everybody was against them. So he was able to convince his footballers that not only were the referees and the officials always against Manchester United, he was able to convince his players that the entire media was against his players. He even convinced his players that that all opposition fans were united in one thing. They were united against United. He managed to convince them of this with one true inevitable result This, every year, seemed to bond his players together. Maybe you can see how they thought. They thought, well, if this is true, and the world and everybody is against Manchester United, we must try that little bit harder to show them. Well, my question to you tonight is very simple. Is that what is happening in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century? We hear all the time, do we not, that society is against the church. We hear that everyone is against the church. We hear that the media is against biblical Christianity. Don't we hear that? We hear that politicians are against the Christian church. So what is that? And what is it? I mean, is that paranoia from us in here? Are we just using our imagination? Are we just fabricating this opposition Or is there something more substantial to that? My question to you tonight is this. Is the world really against the church? Is it? Well, tonight, as I said a moment ago, we're going to begin um, a short sermon series, which you might, uh, might call the consequences of the fall. So we're going to look tonight at God's words to the serpent. The next week, God's words to the woman... And then the week after, we're going to look at God's uh, words to the man. Well, I think in this first uh, part tonight, as God speaks to the serpent, I think we're given the answer to the question, is the world against the church? I think you and I tonight in Scripture are given the true lens to view our society and our country. And this evening, really, it's very simple. I want us to note three insights we are given by God in this portion of Scripture. Three insights. So my first task is this, to uh, ask you to please have Genesis 3, 14 and 15 open in front of you. We will be sticking as close as we can uh, to these verses tonight. Genesis 3, uh, 14 and 15. The first insight I think God gives us here is an insight into his judgment. Not easy stuff but an insight into the judgment of the Almighty God. Now, please tell me, please tell me that we are familiar with Genesis 3. Are we? Come on, we must be, please. We must be familiar with what has just happened. God has just given the first man and the first woman a prohibition, hasn't he? What's the prohibition? Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's happened? Come on, what's happened through the... Boys in front know this, the girls too. Through the temptation of the serpent, first Eve has taken the fruit, eaten it. Then she's given some to Adam. What's the consequence been? 
that not only this rebellion plunged Adam and Eve into the estate of sin and misery, but what else has happened? This has also consigned, consigned, consigned you. Consigned every single one of us in this room to inherit from them a nature that is opposed and an enmity to, to the Almighty God. We know this, but just don't let our familiarity cloud the severity of what is happening here. So what have we got? Verses 14 and 15. Well, at the risk of uh, sounding like a Tory uh, politician, um, let me give you not three R's. I'm sure you remember the, the Tories doing this, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Let me give you not three R's, but three C's to notice about the way that God subsequently judges and punishes here. Three C's. I'll be very brief with these, though. The first is to notice how credible God's judgment is in Genesis chapter 3. See, you know this, don't you? How is it that Almighty God is very often portrayed today in the media? Is it not true that God is often portrayed as being very capricious by our society? You see the idea. There's this ridiculous distinction that's always made. The God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament, that distinction. And what do people tend to say about the God of the Old Testament? They'll say that he's really harsh, won't they? But they'll also say he's erratic, that he acts in an arbitrary way. He's very, very capricious. Well, is that what you see in front of you just now? I mean, maybe you notice, first of all, how methodical God is in the way that he punishes in the aftermath of the fall. Did you notice this? He mirrors the order of sin. Have you ever noticed that? He, he reflects the order of sin. Who does he punish? He goes to the serpent first. Then he goes to Eve next. Then he goes to Adam. You see, it's very orderly and methodical. But then you must notice, please, his first words after the fall. Look at, look at this. Look at verse 14. What is his first words? Please get it. Boys, girls, you look at it too. Verse 14. God says to the serpent, because you have done this. Aren't those words of infinite importance? Don't you see? That's not arbitrary, is it? Because you have done this, I shall punish you. Do you see what it is? There is a grounds for his punishment, isn't there? There is a basis here, a foundation for God acting in judgment. What do you see? What do you see? You see here throughout all of history... You will see one day that God's judgment is always just. So it is what? What was the first C? Did we get it? What's the first C? It's credible. It's credible. The second C is this, that God's judgments are categorical. Um, We can all, I think, just now um, picture in our mind's eye a courtroom scene, maybe a really bustling courtroom Scene. Can we do that? Maybe it's thinking back to O.J. Simpson and the trial with O.J. Simpson. Maybe it's Atticus Finch. Some of us are big fans of that. Atticus Finch in full flow. I wonder if you see that that is what you have in front of you. Or rather, that is the background here. That in a sense, between, I think it's verses 9 and 13, it's as though God has taken on the role of an attorney. 
you know, a prosecution attorney, a lawyer. Because you see what he does in that section? He goes as a lawyer to both Adam and Eve and he interrogates them about their crime. Do you notice that from 9 to 13? He, he goes, he questions Adam, he questions Eve, interrogates them about this offence they have done. That is interesting, we think. But isn't it all the more interesting to see what God does not do? God does not question the serpent. God does not permit the snake to speak. And you see why that's interesting, that unlike Adam and Eve, for the serpent in Genesis 3, there simply is no hope. Like, unlike with Adam and unlike with Eve, the decree is passed by God, the judge now. And you maybe even saw that in the terminology that God uses. Unlike with Adam, unlike with Eve, did you see the serpent is cursed? Adam is never cursed. Eve's never cursed. The serpent here is barred. And what's the upshot of that? What's the consequence of that? He's allowed no audience before God. This snake, this serpent is not allowed to speak. And what is the lesson for us? When God acts in final judgment, there will be no response to him at all. It's a categorical punishment, this, with the serpent. So it's, what was it, credible? It was. It was categorical. But it's also this punishment, the fact that God, God's judgment corresponds to sin. And here's what I want to do. I want to speak to the boys and girls just for a little moment or two. So you'll permit me to do that, I'm sure. So um, there's just two things, boys and girls, that I remember about uh, my headmaster or my principal in primary school. There's only two things that I, because I'm so old that my memory's going a little bit. There's only two things I can remember about my headmaster. The first is that my principal in school used to like to wear shiny suits. So this was a time the early 1980s, it's the only time in human history where shiny suits were allowed. And my headmaster, despite being a free Presbyterian, he liked to uh, wear shiny, shiny suits. So that's the first thing that I remember about him. The second thing that I remember about my principal, my headmaster, was a person because he liked to dish out punishments that fitted the crime. Okay, now I'll give you an example of this. If you were to be really bad at lunchtime and drop your litter on the ground, which I know you, none of you would ever do, but if you were ever to throw litter away in the ground, the headmaster, he wouldn't make you stay in. He wouldn't say you're not allowed to play football. If you drop litter, he wants to dish out a punishment that fits the crime. So what would he do? He would make that student spend the whole lunchtime picking up litter. Now, do you see the idea? Do you see it? He wants the punishment to fit or to mirror the crime or the offense. Now, I wonder if, friends, if you have ever noticed that that is what the Almighty does in Genesis chapter 3. Do you see that God's punishment of the serpent corresponds with his offense Because answer me this, what was the temptation that the serpent puts before Eve? 
what, come on, what was it? Was the temptation to hide the fruit of the tree? Or to spoil even the fruit of the tree? Or what, or just to steal it? What was, what was to eat? Eat the fruit of the tree. Look at verse 14. What's the punishment that God meets out? The snake is also a punishment to eat. Now, carry on with this idea for a moment that it corresponds. What about the result of the fall? Friends, what was the great result for you and for me in the fall? For Adam in the fall? What's going to happen to him? He is going to die. He's going to die. In fact, from dust he came, to dust he's going to return. Now look at verse 14. Look how it mirrors this as well. What is the punishment for the snake? It also involves dust, doesn't it? Eating of the dust. And I think the most striking of the law is in verse 1. Have a look at verse 1 with me. So we learn that the snake is different to the rest of the animal kingdom in verse 1. The snake is above the animals in its craft or its its cunning. It's different. Well, now look at verse 14. Isn't the same true that the serpent now will not be above the animals in terms of cunning, but above the animals in terms of how cursed, how cursed it is. Now even its movement is infused with, with shame and humiliation. Do you see what is God doing here? God is echoing the crime and his punishment. The punishment fits the offense. And tonight, London City Presbyterian Church... That should stop us in our tracks. The fact that God's punishment mirrors the offense. Because what do you know this evening? What's that theological term that we love? The immutability of God. You know that God does not change. That the God who acts justly in Genesis 3 one day shall act in perfect Justice. Does that not stop you in your tracks when you think about this? Does it not? What do you learn here? Is it not that God's judgment of the unrepentant on that final day is going to correspond to their sin? God's judgment of the unrepentant will mirror and echo the way the unrepentant have treated God in this life. And do you see what that means? Like just as the unrepentant have rejected Jesus now, today, so what will happen in the final reckoning of things? That God will reject them. That as unrepentant people have ignored the church, ignored the Lord God and the appeal of the gospel and the offer of salvation. What's going to happen in the last To the people we know and love who are unregenerate and lost, God will ignore them. That as the unbelieving people today say to God, by their unbelief, we want nothing to do with you, God. We want nothing to do with that salvation. On the last day, what will happen? This God of justice, he will speak to them and will say, I know you not away from me. Friends, There is an insight here, isn't there, into the way that God acts by justice. What should that do? I think it should enliven us to gospel witness. So an insight into God's judgment. Let's move on in this this portion of scripture. Second of all, let's consider an insight into spiritual warfare. 
an insight into spiritual warfare. Um, again, I'll speak to the boys and girls just for a moment, although this might be relevant to, to any number of people in here. Um, boys and girls, have you ever heard of Tinga Tales? Tinga Tales. A couple of hands up. No, and none of the adults have put their hands up either. So, uh, Tinga Tales is a children's TV program uh, about the only TV program that I was able to endure when uh, Colin was a little toddler. Tinga Tales, premise is very simple. It tries to tell ridiculous stories of how animals have come to have the characteristics that they currently have, Tinga Tales. So you might have an episode of Tinga Tales where a ludicrous made-up story, very colourful, very bright, very loud, made-up story of how a leopard has come to have spots, or made-up ridiculous story of how a giraffe has a long neck. Tinga Tales, Tinga Tales. What we have to face up to, I think, most seriously, is that that is how a lot of modern-day scholarship views what you have in your hands just now, that a lot of scholarship thinks of Genesis 3 as a very ancient type of Tinga tales. They do. That a lot of scholars will say that what you've got in front of you just now is just a made-up story about snakes, a made-up story of how snakes have come to be the enemy of humanity. This is an ancient, this is an ancient Tinga tale. Now, hopefully tonight, I, I hope that you see there is something a bit more substantial to Genesis chapter 3. You understand it is not just a snake. You understand that the behind this, there's a spiritual debt, there's a spiritual reality. We are dealing with the evil one here. We are dealing with, with Satan, the devil himself. But I think that raises a question that you and I have got to answer. Because to whom is Satan said to have enmity with? Who then is he enmity with? Look at verse 15 with me, please. So God carries on with this punishment. And what does he say? Verse 15, I will put enmity. So enmity, hostility between you, this is, we believe the evil one and the woman. Now, it is the next bit. And even if the boys and the girls, if they get the next bit, if we can all get the next bit, God says to the evil one, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And we have to ask, who is God talking about? I mean, what is this? Is this God saying there will be enmity between Satan and humanity? Is it just enmity and hostility God is promising here between between the evil one and, and, and all people? Is that it? Is it? Well, after Rob and Nicola's wedding last Saturday, it was a lovely day, beautiful day, and uh, I came home and I was standing in the kitchen and my in-laws were staying with us and my mother-in-law was in the kitchen and uh, she starts walking towards me in the kitchen and uh, she goes to pick what she thought was a bit of fluff uh, off my suit that I was wearing for the wedding. Um, but as she approached me, she realized that it was not a bit of fluff, that it was actually a knot in my woolen suit. And so my mother-in-law 
Oh, quickly, takes her hand away, doesn't touch my suit at all. Because you, everyone, boys and girls, even, this is important, life information, um, everyone understands what would happen if my mother-in-law pulled this knot in my new (laughs) suit, that the knot would pull a long thread out of my suit, a long, long thread out of my suit, and my mother-in-law would be, of course, in all manner of uh, trouble if she did that. Here's what I want, this is not nonsense, here's what I want you to understand. What you have got in front of you here is a knot in Genesis 3.15. It is a knot, and it is a knot that pulls a thread, and it's a thread that, that winds its way all the way through the entirety of human history. There is a knot here. God places this knot, pulls the knot, and it winds its way all the way through Scripture. Now, do you think I've lost the plot? Not at all. This is a thread that shows us an enmity between two groups of people. A knot that pulls a thread between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in God's eyes. God here inflicts, begins an enmity between those two groups. And I appeal to you tonight, if you know your Bible, please think about that and you will see that's true. There are two groups of people in Scripture at enmity. In fact, look at your Bible. What's the next story in the Bible? What is it? Is it not a story of enmity and hostility between two people, Cain and Abel? What does First John chapter 3 say of Cain? It says this, that he was of the evil one. You see, Cain, a seed of the serpent, Abel, a seed of the woman. Now, come on, we know Genesis. What comes next? What, what do we see in Genesis? Do we see Isaac and Ishmael? Empty, hostility, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. What else do we see? Come on. We see Jacob. And Esau, we see enmity, we see hostility, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. And you may be seeing me, but this is Old Testament, this is Old Testament, it's finished with. Ah, but think about this one. What is it that John the Baptist says to the Pharisees when they come out to him? You know it, he calls them a brood of vipers. What's another way of, of saying a brood of vipers? The seed of the serpent, you see what God is doing here? He is, as part of this curse, placing an enmity between two groups of people, between the church and the world. And so at that, I can return to the very start of this sermon, not to Sir Alex Ferguson, but to the question that I posed you. Is the Reformed Church, is a biblical church, paranoid? Is it? Do we make up? that the media is against us? Do we make up the reality that politicians are against us? What is God tonight doing in Genesis 3? He is reminding you that the world is spiritually against the church. God is giving you the glasses to view society, to view the world. Really and truly the world is against us. And in light of that, I have two practical things to say to you this evening. The first is most important. Do not, Christian friend, underestimate how savage...
this conflict you're in is. You see, this word that you've got here in verse 15, the word enmity, that word in Hebrew is used later on in the Bible. And listen for the settings. It is used of the most savage conflict. It's used of barbarous attack, of real, horrific warfare. And I am standing in front of you tonight and saying, that is the spiritual reality of your life. Do not underestimate the warfare. Then the second thing to say to you tonight, arm up! Because in his goodness and his grace to us, the church, God has given you weaponry for the fight. He's not left you alone. He's given you the power of prayer. He's given you the power of the church. He's given you the power of the word. So I really am appealing to you to arm up. See, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, do not leave the front door of your house before you are armed through prayer and the reading of God's word. You are in a battle and it is real and it is a dangerous fight with the power of evil itself. So an insight into judgment, an insight into spiritual warfare. And then I close tonight with an insight here from God into the good news, the gospel. It's late, I know. It's a long day. Some of you have traveled many hours, many miles for some of you. But I would ask you to do this as we close. I would ask you quite simply to imagine a large, large crowd. Would the boys do this as well? Girls, can you imagine in your mind's eye a large crowd? In fact, imagine if you can the largest army that you've ever seen. You could not count it. Numberless army. You got it? Then imagine one man in the front line stepping forward out of that army. One man. Because isn't that what happens in Genesis chapter 15 if you look at the language? We are suddenly, I think, in Genesis 15, quite abruptly told not of this huge conflict that engulfs all of human history, we are told of a one-on-one scuffle, a head-to-head fight. Do you see the language and how it's singular? What is it? He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now, I make an appeal to you not to make the most common of mistakes. Uh, Dare I say that even some Bible translations have made uh, this mistake, if you're using the NIV tonight. Do not think that the emphasis is on the type of blows that are struck. You see? The NIV, I think, says that one strikes while the other crushes. But in the original language, the type of blow, which is reflect the ESV, the type of blow is the same. Do you see that both are said to strike? That's not the emphasis. You want the emphasis? The emphasis is on the location of the blows. Maybe again, boys, can you see the the emphasis? Where Satan is said to strike this unnamed figure's heel, this unnamed figure is to to strike a... It's a mortal blow. Because where does he get him? You see, it's a fatal blow. Not the heel, but the head. 
And then let me say to you something I never thought I would say to you. Let me give you some Latin. Because what you've got in front of you just now, for generations in the Reformed Church, has been known as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-first. Evangelium. Good news. And maybe as you see this one-on-one fight and this fatal blow, this mortal blow, maybe you see the truth in that. Maybe it thrills you as a Christian because think of the chronology. Do you see it? In God's very first words after our rebellion against him, what does he promise? He promises humanity hope. In the very next frame, as we watch this storyline, the next frame from the fall, what does God do? He says, I'm going to send you a saviour. And yes, it's a saviour who is going to be crying hurt and struck on the heel. We see that at the cross. We see it at Calvary. But who is the Savior? What shall he do? He shall be victorious. He shall crush the serpent's head as he is raised to life. What is this? This is the proto-evangelium. This is good news. And so I close with this. A word to the Christian, first of all. Christian friend, what is so often overlooked And it's a joyous, joyous note. What is so often overlooked is you and I get to participate in this great victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, yes, it is Jesus that does this destruction of Satan. Yes, in Revelation 20, it is the Lord Christ who will throw Satan finally in that pit. It's his work. He does the work. But what does Jesus say to his church in Luke chapter 10? Listen to the words. He says to his disciples, I have given you authority to trade on serpents. Or what about Paul in Romans 16? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes, it is Jesus' work. He has done all. But in his grace, do you see? As you go out and fight the good fight tomorrow, as you seek to live in holiness for Jesus, as you seek to tell your friends about Christ Jesus, what happens? You and I get to enjoy the last battle skirmishes. The decision, the victory has been won, but we get to fight with the Lord Christ. And then, if I'm going to speak to the Christian, I must also speak to the person here who is not a Christian tonight. So even, my friend, if you have not listened to one word of this this evening, would you please hear this? How about this for a a verse? God says in Scripture that it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. God says he will render to us according to our works. I need you to hear this. If you do not repent of the sin that you know is real in your life, then on that final day, you will stand before God and on the basis of true divine justice 
and in the face of your silence before God, you will be eternally rejected and punished by him. And I really do hope you see what's happening tonight. That in his wonderful mercy, God is delaying that judgment. Isn't that marvelous? That he is delaying that punishment. Why? That you might see your sin and that you might run for salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's delaying judgment. He is giving you an opportunity. Will you not see that? Seize that opportunity and come to Christ. To the rest, I say this. We are at war. We are at war. But praise God, the outcome of that battle has already been assured. What do you see when you look at Calvary Cross? You see the final victory blow. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do ask, Lord, humbly that you might equip us we are in a very real spiritual battle. And we see that in uh, our workplaces. We see that in our families, in our groups of friends as we seek to live for holiness. We see it in our government. We see it in the media. We see that there is antagonism and hatred for gospel good things. Lord, help us to stand firm on your word and in Christ Jesus. But Lord, tonight we do have one final prayer. Would you awaken those who are, who are dead in trespasses and sins? Would you awaken them by your grace to what you have done at Calvary in bearing the sins of your people? Lord, we thank you that the head of the serpent has been crushed by Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.